Celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Today I have my first repeat guest and I'm so excited because Rod Corbin, we are welcoming back the highly celebrated and brilliant performance psychologist. Rod is the director at RMC Performance Psychology and a senior psychologist with High Performance Sport New Zealand. With over 30 years of experience as an academic in the field of psychology and 20 years working in high-performance sport New Zealand, Rod truly embodies the balance of the theory and the practice. Having attended multiple Olympic and Paralympic Games, working with sports from rowing, cycling, hockey, netball, cricket and more, Rod is well-versed in the realm of elite performance. With great opportunity comes great pressure, and he is the person you want in your corner to support whatever pursuit you're endeavoring in. He specializes in athlete and coach support with an interest in brain injury and its impact not only on the individual, but those around them. Drawing on the latest research in psychological practice, neuroscience, and neuropsychotherapy, Rod helps people to understand how their brain works and why change is hard but not impossible. It is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Tall Poppy Talk. First question, Rod, where and how are you today? Uh, Where am I? I'm sitting in my downstairs office in the beautiful sunny Waikato, uh, which is in New Zealand, for those of you not from New Zealand. How am I? I'm really good, actually. Um, I spent the weekends, I'm sitting front of my my T-shirt, I like motorcycles and I have one myself, and I spent the weekend with some friends riding around a place uh, called Fongamomina, which is um, it's one of those iconic New Zealand motorcycle rides. So I spent the weekend doing that, and the weather was fantastic, and the company was pretty good, and got to see some of our beautiful countryside, and yeah, so I'm pretty good, really. The questions, obviously, we discussed last time relating to high performance and the pressures internal, external. I recommend people go listen to that, but this is a different year and we are have you heard that saying where it's like uh, the a man never steps into the same river twice because he's not the same man and that's not the same river the situation has changed essentially is what I'm Mm. saying and we have grown since we last spoke or we have maybe changed slightly but another big factor is it's an Olympic year right it's Olympic Paralympic year and (laughs) what you do is so closely intertwined with this element of like it's, it's game day, it's game time. So heading into the home stretch of an Olympic, Paralympic campaign, what is vital for you right now in prepping athletes and coaches? Mm, yes, we certainly have changed in a year, Grace. You've, you've grown some hair and I haven't. Um, <laughs> Olympic year, it's, it's a culmination. I often talk about it's a four-year campaign and that's a, it's a long time. Although the challenge this time, it's only three years. And I remember after Tokyo, obviously Tokyo was a covid impacted Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. It was a five-year campaign and they just decided rather than stretching it for another four years, they went, we'll just roll it over. So it's been three years, so it's come out really, really quickly. And I think it has presented some slightly different challenges for sports, coaches and athletes. Usually you have a bit more time to plan your campaign, to trial out individuals, to trial out strategies. And so I think you've had less this time. So, so I do think it's a, it is a little bit different. I haven't heard that um, same by the way, I'll try and make it because it sounds quite cool. So it is another Olympic cycle coming around to Olympic year, but it is a little bit different in that it's only been three years and, and we're coming off COVID and all sorts of things. So certainly presents similar but different challenges here. And with the three years, I, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but are you maybe going for the athletes who are more experienced or who uh, have had more opportunity in that kind of elite level or is it indifferent? 
Oh, there's a lot of there's some research and a lot of it's anecdotal, but around team-based sports, particularly around World Cups, you know, teams that win World Cups tend to have experienced athletes that have been to one or two World Cups. I'm I'm not too sure. I'm not involved in selections, but I, I listen to the the rhetoric. I don't think they're going to pick just because you're more experienced. They're going to take you. They they will select the people who they think that can do a job. But I definitely think in it more more team-based sports, having some experience in your team is massively important in terms of understanding what's required, understanding how you train for it. You know, it's not much your first rodeo. You'll hear that. That's one of so your sayings in isolation might are pretty straightforward. It's not my first rodeo, and I think that's pretty true. Uh, I think experience is really really useful. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not the most important. Like I said, it's different. Team sports possibly, yet yeah, could have lots of experience or some experience in the team. But in, I think individual sports, if they're good enough, they get to go. Uh, yeah, and it is a challenge if you've never been to a Games. In fact, I talked to some athletes yesterday, a group of young athletes. One had been to a Games and it's in a small team and the others hadn't. And, and they were saying, you know, that it is a bit, you, you actually have to be, you're going to have to produce a really good performance. You know? And she said it is, she sees it as a benefit. Yeah, it's the unknowns and the knowns heading into it. And also curious, so I interviewed Dan Williamson and he was in the Olympic men's eight. So his only experience at the Games has been the Tokyo COVID one. There was no crowd, no spectators, mm-hmm. no family. So in that example, he's experienced a Games, but nothing like what Rio was and all those yeah other external factors that contribute to the atmosphere of the games wasn't there. Yeah, I think, again, that's a really good point. Uh, the performance pressures, I think, at Tokyo were probably the same as any, any other Olympic Games. People's build-ups were possibly compromised, but everyone was in the same boat. Performance pressures are still the same. But, uh, you know, having, I think in my experience with Tokyo, what I felt, sorry for, I felt sorry for the athletes, because part of the Olympics and the Paralympics is the experience of the games. It's it's the enormity of it. It's the crowds and sports like, so New Zealand sports like rowing, cycling, and some of the sports that don't get a lot of attention outside of rugby, cricket, rugby league, and that, you know, so they, they get lots of media attention. Those things are certainly different. So you're right, I think people who have been to Tokyo are going to have a slightly different experience, uh, which, they, which they won't be prepared for. Yeah, I still think the performance expectations are the same at, at the Tokyo Games as it will be at Paris games but there's definitely going to be some differences yeah if I had hypothetically gone to Tokyo I almost wonder if like that's the best scenario because you're not nervous you're still super nervous but the known parts are the performance Mm. anxiety or the performance Mm. pressures but it's almost just going to be an elevation in regards to yeah the media the crowds it's like introducing one variable at a time I'm really curious people who the unique people who would have had that experience what they're going to say post paris in regards to mm. contrasting it'll be impacted by their outcomes trust me um i often call it like post-hoc rationalization so grace tell me you've just come you've just won the olympic gold medal how, how was your experience oh it was great you know my coach was great build up was fantastic you know i just felt really good I had a real good support team around me it was fantastic Grace, you just come forth, tell me about your Olympic experience. Oh, it was okay, you know, build-up could have been a bit better. And so I think whatever you get is always full of this post-hoc rationalisation based upon the outcome and how how they went. But like I said, I felt disappointed for the athletes because they didn't get to experience, you know, this thing. I think I talked about last time, the more than winning, the more than just the performing aspect of the Games, you know, the, the Olympic spirit that they all talk about, this coming together of people from all parts of the world, you know, competing with each other, but you know, getting to know each other. I think that's the bit that they missed out on. thing you just said, the post something, can you please say it again but slower so I can catch it? Post, post hoc rationalisation. So it's after the fact 
rationalization of okay that was also a lot less complex than I had in my mind but this can be <laughs> this can be applied to everything so since we last spoke some great feedback I had from people was like we you know love the sports stuff but not everyone's in the sport realm mm. right so as I'm yeah. speaking to you I'm thinking okay what of the what are the takeaways from that situation or topic we're discussing that can maybe apply to other areas so is it even someone studying towards an exam right if they do great oh yeah my study Mm. plan went well if they didn't oh well actually this so it can be applied to everything right yeah 100 cents i i blurred that your introduction you read out was taken from various bits and pieces when you're when you're reading it was a little bit embarrassed because obviously it's a sales pitch so you've got some of my website you've got some of various things and i go uh, is that really me gee that person sounds impressive but it can't be and so i always go like i'm a psychologist first and foremost it just so happens i work with specialized working with athletes but i also work in corporate settings so i always go my job is to help people live the life they want to live being the best father they can be the best partner the, trying to get the most out of my performance just in my life and that's uh like i said so all the things that i use with the athletes 100 percent apply to your everyday life and um, this post-op rationalization you're right we are uh, often when things go well you know if i'm walking down the street and i trip over a loose cobble i go oh god what's that loose cobble something i'm gonna sue the council or something but if I see you walking down the street and I see you trip over, I go, oh, look at Grace, she's so clumsy. So this this thing where our attributions are, uh, reflect on what perspective we see it from, our confirmation biases. I think I talked about last time and I'll probably talk about it again, our brain's propensity to keep us safe and secure and feel comfortable. So often that post-op rationalization will be to keep us feeling safe or comfortable. So if I've done well, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to big up myself because my brain likes it, wants to feel good. If it doesn't go so well, then I'm going to probably look for reasons why you know i can step back from the outcome and i'm not going to take full responsibility for it so i can i can feel a bit better about myself and they always say these things are uh, subconscious i'm you know, i'm not saying i've got to feel better about myself so that's what i'm going to do that they're driven by our brain's need to feel comfort and security yes and as you were saying that i was like i did that just today so i had an, an interview earlier today hmm. and Unlike now where I feel I'm alert and I'm focused, if I'm honest with myself, it wasn't the most focused interview and probably didn't get the best out of the guest because I actually heading into it wasn't in my best form. Like my instinct was to say like, oh no, Grace, you're fine. It probably, the guest was distracted when in reality I reflected for 10 seconds and was like, no, that was you. And then also when I think about that later, I'm like, I was actually probably fine. It probably was good, but my instinct yeah. was to the attribution of, yeah. oh, that wasn't me, even though it was. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I go in terms of some of the work you do with all performers is, is getting to that space of being really honest in your reflections and identifying your avoidance and identifying what, you know, when you've been triggered something, when, when I talk about your shadows. And I, got, I always go, shadows aren't things that are bad. They're just part of us. They're often in the dark that drive a lot of our behavior and we're unaware of. So a lot of the performance-based work that I do in all contexts is, is trying to help people understand those things. And that's that's also one of the issues we're talking about. High-achieving individuals, a lot of the athletes I work with, although trying to be the best in the world, so they're high-achieving, they set this bar so high for themselves and they never, they, never, they never make it. Perfect is bad, you know. Perfect is bad. So I must be perfect. Oh, jeepers. Do you? I don't know. Anyone perfect. I want to jump into the part about the shadows, right? What do you do there? Do you recognize? Do you call them out? Do you leave them in the closet? Like, how does someone address those shadows 
if they are like, it's, it is impacting me, what's the first step? Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's always awareness raising. And, and there's a bit of me that goes, we really need to go back and, you know, people say unpack it or address it. And I sometimes go, well, maybe, but often not, because there could be little things. There could be something that, you know, something happened in your childhood, a teacher might have said something to you or was reinforced by someone else. So it might be, it might be something like that. Sometimes I call it your inner child, you know, this uh, trying to recognise who your inner child has to be loved by its parents or might have been the middle child or doesn't feel loved, whatever. And it might, those things aren't true, but that's the stuff that it, so for me, it's about recognizing when it shows up. So I have my own shadows, and when they show up, I go, ah, there we go. There's that five-year-old boy who you know, needs his parents' love or something. And I go, well, yeah, it's pretty normal. But I, I, I just I think I'm a big fan of just being able to recognize where it comes from. And I can't change it. I haven't got a time machine. I can't go back in time, so why bother? But I can be aware of some of the stuff when it shows up. It's the shadow, because like I said, I, I, just, I just reinforce shadows aren't bad. They're just these things that drive a lot of our behaviour or how we see the world, which are in the dark and we're unaware of. So sometimes I talk about putting light on your shadows just so when they show up, we go, oh, there we go. There it is. Nice. That's what. That's that's where that response is coming from. Not good or bad, just as, right, what can I do with it? You know, how can I move forward in the direction I want to move forward in? I resonate with that. And the shining the light on it, it's so that when they turn up, inevitably, because mm. they will here and they there. they will, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep not being surprised or taken aback that they're there instead almost mm. like what's up old friend i i mm. know how to that's deal right. with you yeah. yeah yeah and that's that little technique is a good one it's like fancy with diffusion you know ah what's up little friend so that's just like a that's well it's like getting some distance from that or it's, it's a little little technique to to recognize it but not to get caught up in it so that that's a little strategy right there i like that and i recall last time you touched upon this idea too of like um having goals obviously but being a little bit more realistic about what it's going to take to get there so that when you come yeah. across obstacles much like you come across the shadows might turn up if it's at the start of a start line or here but yeah. recognizing like if you want to get from a to b it's like oh it actually turns out there's a point AAA, like there's all these different steps before yeah. you actually get to be just being prepared that things aren't going to be smooth sailing. 100%. Yep. That's it. So I talk about being adaptable or flexible. I talk about not being constrained while you're planning. You know, I've got a plan. I'm going to do this thing, but don't hold on to it too tightly. You know, hold on to your plan loosely because things might change and you have to be able to be adaptable in it. Psychotherapy, neuropsychotherapy. Yes, what is it and how would it show up in our daily lives? So I get yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to admit to something here. So I said, you've taken stuff from my website. And so I always go, we're all salesmen. We're all trying to sell something. So at the time, there was this thing, neuropsychotherapy was the big thing. Um, and I had to, not that it's not a thing, but it was it's like mindfulness. It's like gratitude diaries, which are all great, you know, but they have their time in the sun. And so neuropsychotherapy, probably four or five years ago, had its, had its it was the thing. Understanding our brain, you know, a lot of brain science. And so it's, it's in there to go, gee, look, I'm up. I'm up with the modern people. I'm doing neuropsychotherapy. It's about combining our knowledge of the brain and how it works in neuroscience and trying to demonstrate to people how that impacts and how we, how we behave and how we see the world and why we might our moods might fluctuate or how we might get triggered by something. Probably came a lot of it came through trying to understand adolescent behavior. And when we talk about frontal cortex or executive function and how that part of the brain develops and changes over adolescence. And so I think I got caught up in that stuff. So I've always been a brain-based psychologist, you know, 
driven by evolution, driven by what we understand, because the brain controls all our behavior. So I was just, I was just, I was just bringing that to my practice a bit more explicitly. I think the danger with it, well, that was, I knew it was one of the questions you were going to ask me. I get a little bit hoha, uh, which is a Maori term for a bit frustrated uh, around it, because I see a lot of brain science rolled out by people and, it, and I sit back and go that's actually not true the brain actually doesn't work like that and I'll give the example of the triune brain which people will talk about they'll talk about the reptile brain the mammal brain and the human brain um, uh, and based on evolution and how evolution doesn't reinvent the world builds on it which is sort of true but sort of not true there's no evidence for the triune brain it, it, it dates back to some dudes in the actually the 60s actually a chap in the 60s talked to the first person to sort of use the phrase and it's just been grabbed onto and you'll see it rolled out again and again and again, this concept of the triune brain and how we are basically a slave to our emotions, our emotional brain, which is sort of true, but not true. But people take it as the gospel. And the other one I talk about is the amygdala hijack, which you'll hear people talk about. Now, there's this little part that sits in our, in our top of our brainstem or around our midbrain called the amygdala. And it's it's basically it gets a lot of data, what information comes through the amygdala and it's constantly looking for threat I talk about. It's not really looking for threat, it's looking for change or difference. But people say, oh, it's this amygdala hijack, you know, this will we can't help ourselves. And I go, that's not quite true either. Um, it's actually, if I, was, if I was going to be more accurate, it might be what we call a hippocampal hijack because the hippocampus is involved in memory and context and so all sorts of complicated things go on. But then we then sold this stuff with a with a not a real understanding of the brain by people who don't really understand the brain. They call it neuropsychotherapy. And I think it just sets us up to be a bit of a slave to our emotions or an excuse. So that's my little hobby horse about neuropsychotherapy is as a thing and, and if people understand the brain, the real because the brain is a complex and brain development is complex. See, I'll be honest, I used to try and brain all the time, but I go, this is this is how the brain works. And I turn around and go, it's not really how the brain works. And it's, um, I think there's a, one of my favorite psychologists at the moment is a woman called Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she'll talk about it, you know, saying it's a metaphor. And she's right, it's a metaphor. I'll use it as a metaphor for how the brain works, but it doesn't really work like this. It's a lot more complicated than this. So that's that's what neuropsychotherapy is. And I've sort of tried to, I might take it off my website because I'm a little bit embarrassed it's in there because I, I think it's been it's been hijacked itself by popular science. It's been simplified to someone like me yeah. and have these conversations, but then through simplification and overuse and inappropriate use, like misuse of it, it's taken a different life form. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking like I'm 25 now, right? And I remember seeing somewhere that my brain is now developed. Is that the truth? Am I here? Uh, for, for, so very generalized women, it's 20 actually. Uh, women typically is 20. Males, it's 25. Some people will say 30. And it's more about executive function and frontal cortex development. So that's why you look at the car accident rates in um, young men. It's actually when you control for experience of driving, it, it's, that's not the reason. It's actually to do with risk taking. And one of, the, one of the things that happens with young males in particular, and they're late, their later brain development, is their ability to assess risk or make good decisions is compromised. So yes, you're lucky, females, they mature as we know, Grace, both of us know. Women are much more um, level-headed about the age of 20, males 25, some people will say 30. Bringing it back to who you work with, in particular athletes, right? There's going to be different sports where people are more willing to take risks anyway, for whatever reason they're Mm. attracted to adrenaline sports Mm. or not. If you're dealing with a 19-year-old male versus 
and this is his first Olympic Games, or 30-year-old woman who's done it many yeah. times. How much are you factoring in yeah, the, the risk-taking, the brain development, like brain attributes when you're working with them? Mm. Sort of considering them, but I'm not, I think it's also the danger you give. We talked about attribution bias or confirmation bias at the start. If I go and they say, oh, they're a 19-year-old young boy, they're going to be like just into risk and just got to watch that. It's sitting there, but I'm, I'm not going to make, I'm going to try not to make assumptions, but I'm always just be very careful not to just jump into that. And that is not to say I haven't done that because I have, you know, we all say I'm human. So yes, I'm aware of it, but I, it's not the only thing I'm thinking because there's also developmentally, you know, humans go through different stages of development through their life. And around 20 years of age, there's a bit of a, um, uh, there's a bit of a transition in terms of how you view yourself in the world. So that also has an impact on how you, so most 20 year olds, whether you're males or females, think they know it all because that's actually part of that uh, transition stage. Can't tell me anything. I've now been there less than I'm an adult. Yeah, yeah, I know everything. Uh, again, massive generalization. So I'm always trying to consider all, all these things around what's driving the behavior or how they might respond and checking it out. Like I said, I try not to let my confirmation bias or the knowledge that I have, academic knowledge, put people in boxes because I think that's really dangerous. Yeah, but you're also extremely knowledgeable and you do have that academic research and background. So understandably, that's going to filter in somewhat as I'm getting older to your point about thinking you know it all because I distinctly remember uh like year eight so you're 12 years old finishing middle school and thinking like I'm it like I'm at I know (laughs) everything and then you get into year nine and you're back at the bottom of the pecking order and you realize you don't know what you don't know and then like with the podcast going into this past year it's been about a year and a half And every time I speak to someone, I get three more ideas of what I should be asking and two more ideas of where I should go. Like the more Mm. I learn, the more I realize I'm not knowing and I'm trying really hard and keeping it with the whole psychology element to not let that overwhelm me because sometimes just it it is a bit much and you just think, sod it, I don't want to. I'm quite comfortable thinking I know it all. I think you might have used the word expert. I say to people, if you go into a room and someone comes in and says they're an expert, get out, get up and leave the room because they're not an expert. Because I'm like you, I go, well, I'm, I'm very old now. But I, I I learn something every day and I learn things from my clients. So, you know, he said, oh, thanks for coming back. You know, and, oh, that's great. I, I came back because I learned some stuff, I reckon, talking to you, which is which is cool. I always go, day you think you know everything. It's the day you should stop doing what you're doing. And there's these developmental stages I've talked about. There's, there's stuff, you know, I think that I went through in my 40s where I thought I knew I'm 40 years of age, you know, I've got a PhD, I've been a university lecturer, I'm now practicing, I've been to Olympic Games, I know everything. And that actually got in the way of me doing my job really well because I, I think I think I know. I know I came across like all knowing and this is, this is how you should do stuff. And that actually created lots of barriers for me to be effective, I think. That's just not a way to operate. You know, when you when you own it and go, well, actually, Todd, I don't know everything, because um, humans are complicated. And if I knew, I always say to people, if I had all the answers, I would not be doing this lovely podcast with you, Grace. I would be on the Caribbean on one of my many islands because I would be loaded because I would have all these answers, but I don't. So I'm sitting here in my lifestyle block in the Waikato looking at, you know, maybe some stuff. I've got to build a fence and stuff or pay somebody to build a fence, but I don't really know how to do it. Obviously, I haven't got the answers because I'm not in the Caribbean. An inclination that you would get pretty restless rather quickly if you were in the Caribbean sitting <laughs> on an island. I don't think it would last long. Yeah, I don't like sitting still, I must admit. Tall poppy syndrome. It's tall poppy talk. This is the podcast, right? And the tall poppy is more internally driven than externally mm. driven. And it's preventing individual but 
collective growth, right? Because I want to, um, like, I want to know more about psychology. By me not asking you and me going through the hard route of doing all the study and everything you did to get where you are, instead, I could have maybe cut off 10% of that time by going straight to you and having a mentor who helped me through that process, right? So then I'm at your level to collaborate sooner. (laughs) The genesis of the podcast was an obstacle to overcome. And now it's more like, oh, no, this is a gift to share these stories and grow and learn from each other. And in your own words, what is tall poppy syndrome? And then secondary, how have you experienced it? Yeah, I actually think I like the way you've used imposter syndrome because I did, I know you asked me this last time. And there's a couple of things I think I said this last time. If you Google tall poppy syndrome, it talks about, and I think I said in my last in the last podcast, I think it's to do with, for New Zealanders, it's to do with our culture, it's our colonial culture. But if you, when you Google it, it actually said it comes from Australia and New Zealand. Both our cultures, even though we don't admit it, are similar, similar histories. The majority of the people that settled New Zealand and Australia were from the UK or Britain, where they came from a very class-based society. And this thing around, you know, in New Zealand and Australia, we, I think we like to think, it's probably not quite true, that we are a classless society and no one's better than anyone else. And so I think that's where it originally came from, is that if you, you know, don't think you're better than anyone else because we'll cut you down because that's not how we rock. Don't get above your station. Just get about you, go about your business and don't, don't talk about it. This time, and I'm new to ask me this question, I've come across... Now, people get, I feel like I've got imposter syndrome. And I go, what is this imposter syndrome? It's a thing driven by social media. Like, yeah, you'll see it on, on, the, on the top base and things like that. You know, sort of, and I yeah, I looked at the DSM, which is a diagnostic sort of mental criteria for mental illness. And it's in there. I'm going, but gee, there's a, there's a whole lot of things you've got to check. But I've had some younger athletes say to me, oh, and these are very good athletes, but I feel like I'm, I'm an imposter out there. And you're right. It's the, it's the, in, it's the, it's the internal driven, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be here. And that's a New Zealand thing. You know, despite them you know, going out and proving they deserve to be there. And it takes them a while to realise. I've got one athlete I can think of at the moment who's been pretty successful. They're still young, and they've, but over the last 12 months, they've had a lot of success. And when I first started working with them, they were talking to me about you know, every time I do this thing, I don't think I belong here. Imposter syndrome, they use the term. And I went, oh, imposter syndrome, what is that even? It's, social media but they've had a year of pretty good success and I think there's probably a little bit of it but I think that's normal you know this lack of self-confidence self-belief because this is the other myth I always go what's probably what I do I actually spend most of my time dispelling myths got to be self-confident got to have self-belief and I go really who really amongst us is really self-confident or you know that or has so much self-belief probably a psychopath and that's not normal we know that so I think a lot of it is natural uh, but i think we've just because of social media we've labeled it as this thing called imposter syndrome so again i'm just saying well i don't even know what imposter syndrome is and i don't think you've got it but it is this lack of confidence and just challenging those those sort of assertions around you know why, why don't you think we belong to you have you not done the work so it's just trying to be really strength-based and we know that being strength-based is really effective but let's not get too strength-based though you know which is almost the tall poppy syndrome again you know oh gee gotta look at they're not that good so we even though we know strength based being strength based is effective at the same time we almost limit being strength based because we're not that good so i think it's you're right you, you know i think it's more this internal battle that we have with ourselves and it goes back to how much when we started around shadows in your brain and avoidance is that i don't want to go and talk to rod because he might tell me i can't do it or i'm not good enough or what would he think of me rather going well actually i don't really care what the old part thinks of me because i want to go and learn about this stuff and see what i can get and that's hard because right? i've got to go i talk about i think one of the questions you asked me at the beginning how, how, do, how do we go about preparing for the olympics and 
coming full circle, I have this thing called the three C's. Clarity, get really clear on what you need to be working on. Commitment, so what's your plan? Be clear on your plan and, 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 and who's going to help you in that plan. And then courage. Courage talks about, so what expectation, what failure are you willing to risk in the service of it? And so that's stuff that's you're talking about. So don't let your avoidance, your fear of failure, fear of what other people might think of you get in the way. Because it's going to show up because you're human. But that's what it's about. So what are you willing to sit with? What discomfort are you willing to sit with in the service of your the thing you want to achieve? When you talk about commitment to the plan part, if you see a lot of success, right? So maybe your plan is, or things might not go to plan in a negative way. So I'm going to need to pivot, right? Or I'm going to need to extend the timeline or something like that. But also sometimes the plan goes unexpectedly well. So in this instance, mm. the example of Dan, he he goes to the Olympics at 21 and gets a gold medal. He almost was in disbelief. He couldn't accept it because the plan was that in like 10 years, eight years time, he was going to do that. And so mm. when you say this commitment to the plan externally or internally in a good or bad way, like how much, mm. I guess, how much like stretches there to a plan's commitment? Yeah, it's interesting. So you go, right, first couple of things I go, get clear on what you're trying to work with and get clear on what you're trying to achieve. And it's like, so when I talk about the three C's, it's actually this moment in time. So it's more than a goal, I want to win the Olympics, it's actually, so that's where I'm heading. I want to I want to achieve this thing. And at the moment, here's what I need to work with. So I get really clear on that. And then what's my plan for that? And the reason why it's in this moment, because you're going to get some feedback. So often I'll say to people, they might say to me, well, I'm not getting any better. I'm you know, not scoring as, uh, more runs on my times aren't getting faster or whatever. And I go, okay, well, either you've been working on the wrong stuff or the plan's wrong. Uh, or you haven't, you, you haven't been able to sit, you haven't, you've been avoided. Or the work I've done has been rubbish and it's not helping you. So let's look at that. And when I talk about clarity, I go, pick the, what do you need to be working on? And, and then I, one of the questions I ask people is, how do you know it's the thing you should be working on rather than just what's easiest for you? Cricketers will go, oh, I want to go on the net, net, net today, batters. I uh, just want to throw, throw some hard bodies, just throw some hard bodies at me. Easy. And I and I go, why, why are you doing that? Oh, because yeah, I want to feel good. I want to feel good before I go out and play tomorrow 140k to knock my head off. Okay, so um, so you're not gonna feel good tomorrow, are you? No. So why do you want to feel good now? So sometimes it's challenging I've done what's easiest for them rather than going, I want to go in there and challenge myself. So the best athletes I've worked with are the ones that look for things that are bloody hard, push them physically and mentally. And they do, and they where they might fail, and that's the courage to fail, because it's in the service of learning some stuff. So we go back to Olympic preparation. So a lot of the, and it's different because some people are still going through selections, and they've got to get points to see if they can qualify. But even then, I'm still asking, challenging people: What are you willing to fail at in the service of learning some stuff, so you can perform when it counts? So again, those three C's getting really, really, really clear. Are you working on the right stuff? And it's just constantly coming back and reviewing it. You know, I'm not getting any better. Why not? Maybe we're working on the wrong thing or our plans wrong. So let's have a look at that. I'm nodding along as you say that because my athletic part is thinking of now I'm not rowing, I'm running. I'm running marathons. In a couple of weeks, I'm doing Tokyo, right? And all the training things online say so you start tapering like three weeks out. It's like, why? Because I know me, I'd get to the start line and be like, I haven't run in three weeks. Like I haven't properly run. Like I feel rested, but mentally I'm like, so as you're talking about, yeah, you're feeling good now, but how are you going to feel on the day? I don't know if that's right or yeah. wrong, but that's how I, I'm thinking. And maybe listeners as they're nodding along going, oh yeah, sometimes I've chosen what's easiest, maybe not what's actually hmm. right for the plan. That's right. So I would say what's easiest for you is to keep running because that's what I'm good at and I feel, it makes me feel good. 
what's the hard thing for you to do, the hard thing to do for me is taper. Um, I'm not an exercise physiologist, but I've worked in endurance sports. Tapers work. Trust me, tapers work. <laughs> um, particularly for endurance athletes who often have high loads, you know, massive, like massive Ks on a rowing boat, massive Ks running, massive Ks on a bike. Uh, so you do want to freshen up. The tape, I think the trick of the tape is tough. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm not a physiologist, but I know getting that right. But your example is a real good one. The easy thing for the bracelet to do is to keep running because I feel good about that. It gives me confidence. Hard thing to do is for me to taper and to sit with all the thoughts I haven't done enough running. You know, the expect I should be running more. So that's the courage um, part. Yeah, the, the courage part is to do the taper. Thoughts are going to show up about the doubt. Should I, I, I'm not, I haven't run enough. You know, I should be running more. You know, I must be feeling good. You know, so I always go, how do you recognize the expectation? You'll hear the words should and must in there. And sometimes the should and must are true. But that tells you there's expectation right there. So it's like, again, about the shadows, okay, expectation showing up for me, right. Have a, have a think. What's what's actually, what's the hard thing for me to do here? What do I think is best for me? You know, so again, it's just moments where you're just, just noticing what's what's showing up for me and then being, being able to step back a little bit and to go, all right, what's happening here for me? What's going on for me? What's the hard thing for me to do? What's the easiest? Just trying to work through these little internal dialogues, if you like. You've seen right into my soul with, with that <laughs> thank you because you're so spot on and to give that more context as to why I'm because the should and must is a hundred percent expectations I have on myself because yeah. when I came to the states the coaching program here everyone all 70 girls do the exact same thing I know fundamentally that that's not a good training strategy right because individuals yeah should adjust as needed if they're injured this and that but it was just we're all going to do the same thing and if enough people it will work for and enough was what they needed right yeah, so that's right the expectations and the should and the must I spent years just being told that's the way to do it and now I self-doubt am I just being lazy if I taper that, that's um, your background rower work hard that's what we do. We work hard, we row. Particularly if, if you're a New Zealand rower, that's what New Zealand rowing is based on. And so, yeah, that's that's it. I should be doing lots of stuff because that's what we do. So that's that's your mindset. That's a lot of New Zealand athletes' mindset is endurance athletes work more. I once had a, a cyclist who rode on the pro, pro circuit years ago in Europe, and I was having to be over there with another team, and he, he caught up and he said, oh, and basically he was saying he was he was struggling and he, what, he, what he was explaining his feeling to me was like overtraining and I know lots of people that say there's no such thing as overtraining okay we'll have a debate about that but maybe there is maybe there isn't and I said to him oh okay all right sounds like you sounds like you're a little bit of overtraining I said so um how do you, you know who writes your programs for you and I said oh well the basically the director the director of the team writes the programs and, uh, and I said so do you get given exactly what you do he said oh no you know, you know so for example you might go here on this day you do it between a three-hour ride and a five-hour ride and I say, let me guess, you do the five-hour ride, don't you? And he says, yeah. I said, what are your European teammates? Say, yeah, they, they're lazy. They do the three-and-a-half-hour ride. How are they? And I go, how are they going? They're going real good. Hmm, okay. Have you thought about that? <laughs> so we always felt he had to do the maximum, you know. And I think that's, again, that's that New Zealand endurance-based mindset that we've brought up. So, yeah, don't don't give yourself a hard time. It's like, oh, you know, that's... I should be training. I should be doing. It's just it's yeah. It's like talking about the shadows or who I am as a person or or how am I how I've been trained. Going to run marathons? Who would do that? Why would you then run a marathon? I don't know. I'm an ex rugby player. That's the last thing I want to be doing. So I mean, you're saying I'm going to run a marathon. I'm doing. Of course you are. Of course you're going to run a marathon. Next thing will be ultra marathons. Or you'll be doing Iron Ironman or something. Like that. I want to do Ironman 2025. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> you say that and one of uh, one of my friends is a physio right and he's very fascinated with the endurance athletes and they're told you know like you'll tell an endurance athlete you need to rest take a rest day they're probably not going to do that and so then you need to tell them all right let's maybe you do a stationary bike you have he says you have to work with them and this is his uh I'm speaking on his behalf, so apologies if I'm incorrect there, but you have to be realistic of where their mind's at. If I tell this endurance athlete to take a rest, they're not going to. But if I tell them, do a 45-minute stationary bike, low resistance, they'll do that because that's Mm. the instruction. And so factoring in, yeah, well, there's maybe the ideal situation for them. Like for me, it's ideal that I taper. I'm not going to do that. So what? <laughs> I need to work on that, but I'm probably not going to do that. Where yeah. can I find that sweet spot? And the shoulds and the musts make me think too, and you mentioned earlier with social media, that's kind of just happening with everyone, isn't it? I, I noticed that a lot with my friends of, you know, people are doing the European summers or they're getting married or that yeah. I'm in a, that's kind of a prime thing happening in my age group at the moment. And it is very easy to have the shoulds and the musts when you're looking at social media and you're yep. just seeing the highlights. That's right. I think I said this in the last podcast we did is that uh, people say, you know, why is there so much more mental ill health these days? And I go, social media, that's what it is. Yeah, and it's simplistic, but a lot of it is. You see all these social media things around how you should be living your best life. And that's why, you know, I said, oh, you know, be the best person. I was like, I want to stop this because I, that's part of the issue. Be the best version of me I can be. I go, what is that? That, that, what what that's expectation right? what is the best vision I've got no idea but a lot of it's driven by social media you know we're hardwired to look at others and make comparisons and usually we're worse off so that drives a lot of our own feelings of inadequacy I guess but now with social media it's on like that on steroids you know so you just you're bombarded by inevitable comparisons every day and you are bound to come up short even the motorcycling so there's like so you ask me how often I get out oh, yeah quite a lot there's a there's a dude on one of the social media motorcycle groups here in New Zealand. And he's continually posting about all these rides he's doing every day. And I'm going, oh my God, he's living on such a crap motorcyclist. Why not? And then those catchphrases, you know, live to ride, ride to live or something. And yeah, that's what it is. And I'm like, I've got to stop myself and going, what are you doing, you idiot? He's retired. No, you've got a job. I'm not immune to it either. And what is that kind of tactic you use, right? Because it's easy for me to be like, yeah, social media is, it, but we're going to use it the same way I say, I'm probably not going to take a rest day. I'm not going to delete Instagram because yeah. I do love it. We're doing a podcast. We're doing a podcast. Of course, you're not going to delete Instagram. No, right? <laughs> and so when inevitably those comparisons happen and I feel shitty mm. for whatever mm. reason or worse, sometimes you feel good, right? You're like, oh. Mm. Then- <laughs> yeah, I'm winning. I'm winning. That's fine. I- I'm winning. <laughs> How do you interact with it? And also stop those or maybe kind of combat those comparisons. Yeah. So I think one of those to, to accept the fact that, you know, I said it, you know, I talk about we're humans, not robots. And I've said it today, like me, I'm human. I'm going to, so that's my biggest thing at the moment. We're humans, not robots. It'd be great if we're robots, but we're humans. So we're going to experience all these things that we're hard-minded to experience. So one is we go back to the neuropsychotherapy stuff, talking to people about those types of things. You know, these things are almost hardwired into us. And here's why, here's how they were quite useful for us through evolution, but they've just sort of stuck with us, these things, you know, and because of our modern day society and the things that we're feeding a lot of those things that, that have just kept, that have done really well for us. So that's the first bit. Another one is to recognize it when it shows up. <laughs> you go, oh, like, I remember looking at this, and I even now still look at it and I go, 
oh man, he's out again. He's done this right. I haven't done that right. I go, oh, there you go, you idiot. You're a clown. Look at you. The old law of an inevitable comparison. So it's just like recognizing that it's going to show up for you. By now, people realize one of the big things I use is humor, a lot of lot of sort of self-deprecation, but it's it's for a purpose. It's a purpose in that it's one of those things that help, helps me just lessen the impact of some of the stuff when it shows up. Yeah, oh, there you go, you, you idiot. Sometimes I say to people, just your brain doing its job. That's all it's doing. So that's often a strategy I give people is to recognize, you know, one of the little, little, little bits of self internal dialogue when it shows up is to go there we go that's my brain it's just doing its job just trying to look out for me there's an awareness raising to recognize that we all have these things when you look at some of the compassion focused therapy or the self-compassion stuff they'll talk about acknowledging the being giving you self-compassion and then self-compassion realizing that you it's, it's part of the human condition you know so it's because i'm human lots of little things to uh, to deal with it doesn't stop it from happening that it's what I keep saying people like I think that's often when people lots, lots of athletes will come to people like me for us to fix them or not let you know, so take away their anxiety or their self-doubt and they get the solution because we can't and they go oh, that person was rubbish they didn't they get I want to get a, get a skill that would make me like confident but that person just told me that it's just being part of being human oh, I, I, there's not a lot I do I do more than that hopefully but you know what I mean is like they get the solution because we don't have an answer for them. We don't say, just do this thing and you'll be confident. Just do this thing and you'll feel, we won't feel anxious anymore. Because that's impossible. We go back to, if I could do that, I would not be here on this podcast. I'll be back on the Caribbean island again. You'd be back on the island getting ready to leave. It is true, isn't <laughs> it? And some, I, I had a sports a psychologist through the, the college I went to and it was great. And something we worked on a lot was, for me, the spiral, right? So... I'm being human and I have a thought of whatever self-doubt and then I berate myself. The day's ruined and then the tra- the training's ruined, the day's ruined, the this is ruined. And we worked a lot on like you can actually stop that spiral. So, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe training sucked, but that can be the end of that shitty feeling and then yeah. you can you can move on. Yeah. That is a lot easier to say than to do is then to do. stop the spiral. Why? You've actually just used one of the phrases I must use three or four times a day. I'll say I'll have a discussion with an athlete or a person. Yeah, this is what we do. This is, you know, this is most you human. I go, so easy for someone like me to say that. Really hard for you to do. And I get that. So again, that's that self. Sometimes you won't be able to do it. Even that example of you, you know, in your training. Yeah, you know, the reality is maybe it was a shit training. But I say to people, you know, there's like, can you take something good away from it? Uh, no, nah, Rod, well, he's wrong. You know, we'll cut up your right. Um, how was the road? Oh, rubbish. Okay. Um, so how far did you go? We went out to Keeley's and back, which is about 20. It's a long way. Okay, so 20Ks was rubbish? Yeah, it was a total waste of time. Really wasn't. Oh, no, I suppose there was there was 10, 10, 10 strokes up on the weed wire that was pretty good. And, you know, up by the up by the start line, we had another 15 or so strokes. So it's just trying just trying to stop that spiraling away by just going, yeah, the row was, was wasn't fantastic, but you got something out of it. I actually there's a metaphor I, I use which I stole from a row a very long time ago. And he, he I like it and I use it all the time. He would say to me, he viewed training as he starts with this big empty jar and and he's and every time he trains, he's trying to put grains of rice in the jar to fill the jar up as much as he can. Some days he can put a whole big handful of grains of rice in the jar. Some days, it's gone great. Some days, you know, you put a few grains of rice in the jar, but I'm still putting grains of rice in the jar. You know, so it's just a nice little way to sort of, to reflect on, yeah, it's not as good as I wanted it to be, but I still put some grains of rice in the jar. The other thing I often say to people, and this is in, in life as well, as not about sport, is go, I want to be the best version of me. I want to give, a, I want to give a, be the 100% best I can be. I go, well, that's just impossible. So I talk about giving 100% of what you've got on that day. So it might not be as much as you want to be able to give, but it's 100% of what I've got, and that's what I'm going to give. And if I do that, then that's a good day. 
and this is why I needed you back on and I have a new sign off question for you. Is there anything we haven't, I didn't ask you during this discussion and I know there's probably a lot, but anything in particular I didn't ask that you think's worthwhile to touch upon? Let me go and check my notes. Um, I just hopefully people some get some stuff out of it. I, I guess the other thing I would just put a caveat, and you mentioned it before on some of the content, I guess it's things I've said, it's, it's the stuff I say is really easy and it sort of makes sense. It's just so hard to do, you know, and it's this thing called crawl optimism. I think I've, I, I, I tried a bit of social media stuff on LinkedIn or a little blog on my LinkedIn page. It was on this concept of crawl optimism, which I took out of a book called Stolen Focus. Actually, I quite like the art concept. And it's like, uh, and I talk about crawl optimism being people like me come along and they t- say to you, just do your 10 minutes of mindfulness each day. Do your gratitude diary and you'll be all sweet. So you go off and you do your mindfulness diary and you do your gratitude diary. You do your 10 minutes of mindfulness. You do your gratitude diary and you maybe do some box breathing or whatever. And your life's sort of a bit shit, you know, and then you start to go, oh, my God, um, I'm doing all these things and I'm not getting any better. So, so actually, I'm there's something bad about it. So I go, be, be wary. And this, don't get me wrong, mindfulness, we know, is useful. We know gratitude diaries are bloody useful. Um, we know Good breathing stuff, my friend, is good. But them on there, that they're, they're like they're not the panacea to everything. So please, you know, I've said all these things. You said it before. Really easy for me to say, but actually in practice, they're hard. To, they're hard to put in practice. Yes, so thank you. I don't want to be a purveyor of cruel optimism. No, and that's why you do need the external people, such as yourself and the, the specialists and the people who are trained, because. Yeah, it is going to be even harder for me to to do the thing that I know in theory I should do. And so that's the benefit of having psychologists and therapists and a support system. So you can have that external person, whether it is, you know, the cyclist who wants to train for five hours instead of three. Sometimes you hmm. need that outside person to go, you're probably good with three today. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you you need help and not to try and always do it by yourself, I think, too. Well, Rod, my final question for you is if you had to listen to just one artist for the rest of your life, who would it be? These questions are impossible to answer. Who would it be? It would depend on how I was feeling at the time. Um, oh, my God. Probably have to be Bruce Springsteen. That's solid. Uh, Why? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's boring. Uh, I don't know. I just think he's a great storyteller. Um, if you read any of his, I'm a bit of a Bruce Springsteen fan. If you read his autobiographies, I think. And, and again, you know, I have this exercise where I talk about people that are you're influenced by and help you, helps you come up with your own sort of in a personal statement, if you like. And so he's one of them. And I go, I don't know this person. But, you know, I've read some of his autobiographies. I've listened to interviews. which, And I know it's 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 basically, it's probably not the real him. But I think, you know, he, he's really open about his upbringing and the battles he had with his father, his own mental health. Um, there's a lovely little video, which I haven't used in a talk, but I want to use it one day. It's an interview, a documentary on him, probably 25, 30 years ago. He's driving a car, he's being filmed, and he turns the camera and says, why do humans suffer? He asks his own question. He says, because they have to. So it's not only just his music, I actually just, and the lyrics. And, and there's also another beautiful story he tells. So I'm going off on a Bruce Springsteen rant. His first tour to him and the East Street Band to go to the UK in 1975, and they play at this place called the Hammersmith Odeon, which is a great live album, anyone, if anyone wants to get a good Bruce Springsteen, 1975, live at the Hammersmith Odeon, probably his best album. Um, and he's just out. Yeah, he arrives and they've got like you know these Bruce Springsteen things up and you know the second coming of Jesus, which was a famous term that was used by his manager. And he said he he was 23 at the time and he goes running through and he shares off all the things. Oh, the man stolen my music, the man stolen my music. And he said, I look back on that time and go, What a dick. <laughs> 
So that's why it is music. Tomorrow it could be Bob Marley. Tomorrow it could be Paul McCartney. It could be, geez, I don't know, he's someone more modern. Maybe Taylor Swift. She's got many, <laughs> many different eras and genres you could listen to. I think that's yeah. an incredible answer. And um, yeah, it probably will change tomorrow or this and that. But it's a tough question. I don't have an answer right now. <laughs> that's unfair. You made me. So I just, my, my mate is also a big Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. We go, best three artists. And I've just come to the I'm not answering that question anymore. Because I'm not, I can't answer that question because there's too many and they're all very good and I like them for different reasons. Yeah, and you listen to people in certain movies. It's the same way sometimes you want to mm. watch a movie and I go, I want to watch Jack Black. I don't know what movie, mm. I just want to watch something with Jack Black because I know his humour is going to be yeah. what I need. Yeah, there you go. We'll go the- for the boss today. Rod, thank you again for joining Tall Poppy Talk. I know more and I know less as we touched upon at the beginning because I have more questions, but I really appreciate you taking the time again to talk to me and I've learned even more than last time. I really appreciate it. No worries, Grace. Take it easy. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube and the website.